Welcome to the August 4th, 2020 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with a quick overview of what's new in Annals over the past few weeks. I know that our listeners are busy people, so let's get right to the new articles. First is an article reporting a study from Tehran University of Medical Sciences. The researchers reviewed data from a national registry to assess the characteristics and mortality of hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Iran's Ministry of Health and Medical Education mandates all hospitals in the country to register patients admitted with the diagnosis of confirmed or suspected COVID-19. These data showed that among 62,955 patients admitted to the designated hospitals between February 20th and April 20th, 2020, 29,111 tested positive for COVID-19. Among all patients admitted during the study period, the in-hospital mortality in the 30 days following hospital admission was 24.4%. Patients who are over the age of 65 were significantly more likely to die from COVID-19, as were those with any coexisting conditions such as heart disease or diabetes. These data add to knowledge about the fatality rates of COVID-19 among persons hospitalized for the infection around the globe. The next article also addresses COVID-19 fatality rates, but among all identified as infected rather than just among those hospitalized, as in the study from Iran. Wide country-to-country variation in COVID-19 case fatality rates has been observed, contributing to uncertainty about the true lethality of the disease. A large part of this variation may be due to the ages of individuals who are tested and identified as being infected and the age distribution of the population. Researchers from the Heidelberg Institute of Global Health studied aggregated data on COVID-19 cases and deaths by age across China, France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, South Korea, Spain, Switzerland, and the United States. They found that the case fatality rate was highest in Italy, 9.3%, the Netherlands, 7.4%, and Spain, 6%. The lowest case fatality rates were in South Korea, 1.6%, the United States, 1.2%, and Germany, 0.7%. However, adjustment for the age distribution of cases explains 66% of the variation across countries, with the resulting age-standardized median case fatality rate of about 2%. This study shows that adjusting for age is essential for accurately comparing countries' COVID-19 outcomes and for monitoring the epidemic over time. In an accompanying editorial, authors from University of Toronto suggest that standardization is an important first step in ensuring that between-country comparisons of case fatality rates are accurate. In addition to age, differential outbreak responses are likely responsible for some of this variability among countries. Weak public health responses that result in overwhelmed intensive care units will cause case fatality to inflect upward. In addition, greater availability of testing will increase the case fatality rate denominator, thus decreasing the case fatality rate. In addition, variation in classifying COVID-19 attributable deaths may account for additional differences across countries. The World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention advise those who are infected with or have been exposed to COVID-19 to isolate or quarantine at home using a separate bedroom and bathroom from other family members if possible. 
The next article reports a study that investigates the feasibility of such quarantine in U.S. households. Researchers from Case Western Reserve University and the City University of New York at Hunter College used data from the American Housing Survey to determine the feasibility of separate rooms for isolation and quarantine for housing units in the United States. They found that more than one in five U.S. homes housing about one quarter of all Americans lack sufficient space and plumbing facilities to comply with WHO and CDC quarantine recommendations. This proportion is particularly high among homes occupied by minority and poor individuals and among apartment dwellers. The authors suggest that policymakers consider offering persons needing isolation or quarantine the option of staying at no cost in underutilized hotels under medical supervision with meal delivery and internet and telephone access. Similar strategies have been used successfully by several Asian countries and might decrease COVID-19 transmission, particularly in disadvantaged communities. On July 23rd, we published an update of the Living Systematic Review on the relationship of angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers on outcomes of SARS-CoV-2 infection that Annals initially published on May 15, 2020. The authors identified three new meta-analyses and five new observational studies addressing the question, but this new evidence did not change the substance or certainty of their original conclusions. There is high certainty that use of ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers is not associated with more severe COVID-19 disease. COVID-19 has swept through prisons in much the same way it has swept through nursing homes. After being introduced by staff or newly arrived residents, it spreads efficiently, including to many with medical vulnerabilities. Yet many correctional workers lack basic protection. The authors of a commentary argue that ensuring community standard occupational health care for correctional staff during COVID-19 is sorely needed to protect prison residents, staff, and their communities. The COVID-19 pandemic has prompted an unprecedented global research effort to better understand the virus and identify promising treatments. The next article is a commentary that calls for vigilance in making sure that defining such research as public health surveillance does not allow researchers to circumvent appropriate ethical oversight, informed consent procedures, and protection of vulnerable populations. July 2020 marks the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disability Act, and Senator Tom Harkin, who was instrumental in developing the act, reflects on the progress it has enabled and how far we have left to go to facilitate the lives of Americans with disabilities. In a commentary published in Annals, Senator Harkin writes, quote, healthcare is faced with a harsh truth. The medical model for healthcare of past decades led to biases that still persist today. Those biases affect more than just the persons cared for and treated by the medical community. The medical community cannot solve the systemic and pervasive biases alone. Even with the highest medical ethical standards, knowledge, and skills that span social and biological domains, the social system, including public and private payment systems, is organized in a manner that impedes the full integration of persons with disabilities into society, end quote. In closing, the commentary challenges everyone in the medical community, clinicians, educators, and administrators, to think about their role in the treatment, care, training, hiring, and employment of persons with disabilities. 
Vaccines are clearly one of the greatest achievements of modern public health, saving countless lives and all but eliminating once prevalent diseases such as mumps, measles, and polio. The current COVID-19 pandemic is a reminder of life with contagious infectious diseases without an effective vaccine. However, vaccination hesitancy has reduced vaccination rates in recent years, and outbreaks linked to vaccine refusal have been reported. Researchers from Tel Aviv studied initial and subsequent labels of 57 vaccines that were U.S. FDA-approved between January 1996 and December 2015 to explore post-marketing safety modifications in U.S. Food and Drug Administration-approved vaccine labels. The researchers aggregated hundreds of thousands of reports from the FDA's Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System following hundreds of millions of administered vaccines for their study. They found 58 post-approval safety-related label modifications associated with 25 vaccines. The most common safety issue triggering label modifications was restriction of vaccination for specific populations, such as immunocompromised patients or preterm infants, followed by allergies. According to the researchers, these findings do not support vaccine hesitancy, but rather show that vaccines are safe and that public vaccination should remain as a major public health strategy. Denosumab is an effective treatment for osteoporosis when doses are administered regularly and on time. However, delaying dosing is common in clinical practice. Almost 50% of patients have at least one delay of more than four months, which is associated with a reduced improvement in bone mineral density. Its effect on fracture risk has not previously been studied. Researchers from Brigham Women's Hospital studied health records for nearly 26,000 patients initiating denosumab therapy for osteoporosis to estimate the risk for fracture among users of denosumab who delayed subsequent doses compared with users who received doses on time. The data showed that patients who delayed subsequent denosumab doses by more than 16 weeks had increased risk for vertebral fracture compared with those who adhered to the recommended dosing schedule. There was not enough evidence to draw conclusions about fracture risk at other sites of the body. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that strategies to improve timely administration of denosumab in routine clinical settings are needed. Effective management of celiac disease requires a lifelong gluten-free diet. Dietary adherence is crucial for mucosal healing and prevention of long-term complications, but complete avoidance of gluten is difficult even for the most committed patients. Researchers from Belgium described the case of a male patient with celiac disease and alopecia. After achieving some remission following a gluten-free diet, the patient resumed eating gluten and had symptoms on and off and persistent alopecia. Off-label use of tofacitamide, 5 milligrams twice daily, was prescribed for alopecia. Follow-up investigations unexpectedly showed complete histologic and serologic remission of celiac disease despite the patient's consumption of a gluten-containing diet. The patient continued tofacitinib use with regular blood tests showing normal complete blood count, lipid levels, and creatinine kinase levels. While these results are intriguing, the authors caution that potential side effects warrant consideration of this treatment only for very refractory celiac disease. SGLT2 inhibitors are a newer class of diabetes medication. Randomized controlled trials have demonstrated that they reduce the risk for myocardial infarction, heart failure, renal disease, cardiovascular mortality, 
and potentially all-cause mortality in patients with type 2 diabetes at high cardiovascular risk. However, there are several important safety concerns related to their use, including a possible increased risk for diabetic ketoacidosis. The Canadian Network for Observational Drug Effect Studies investigators studied electronic healthcare databases from seven Canadian provinces and the United Kingdom to assess whether SGLT2 inhibitors compared with dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors are associated with an increased risk for diabetic ketoacidosis in patients with type 2 diabetes. They found robust evidence that SGLT2 inhibitors are associated with an increased risk for DKA. Because the beneficial effects of SGLT2 inhibitors in the prevention of cardiovascular and renal disease will probably increase their uptake in the following years, the authors caution that physicians should be aware of diabetic ketoacidosis as a potential adverse effect. Endotheliitis and microangiopathy have been identified as key features of the pathophysiology of severe COVID-19. In addition, a multi-system inflammatory syndrome similar to Kawasaki disease has been increasingly reported in association with COVID-19 in children and young adults. Next is a case report in which authors from Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center describe the pathologic findings of vasculitis of the small vessels of the heart, which likely represents multi-system inflammatory syndrome leading to death in a young adult after presumed resolution of severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 infection. Obesity has been associated with poor outcomes of COVID-19, but obesity is also associated with comorbidities that also place patients at higher risk for poor outcomes. Thus, disentangling the independent effects of obesity on COVID-19 outcomes has been challenging. The next article reports a study of 24,066 adults hospitalized with confirmed COVID-19 to examine the composite outcome of intubation or death while accounting for body mass index, biomarkers of inflammation, and comorbid conditions. The results showed that obesity is associated with an increased risk for intubation or death from COVID-19 in adults younger than 65, but not in adults age 65 years or older. The next article reports an exploratory analysis of data from the canakinumab anti-inflammatory thrombosis outcomes trial that found that patients receiving interleukin-1-beta inhibitors had significantly lower rates of total hip or total knee replacements over an average follow-up of 3.7 years. These findings are important as no treatments currently exist that can either prevent or slow progression of osteoarthritis. In this trial, more than 10,000 patients with elevated high-sensitivity C-reactive protein levels and a history of myocardial infarction were randomly assigned to canakinumab or placebo injections every three months for up to five years to determine the cardiovascular effects. Cardiovascular events fell among participants receiving a higher dose range of canakinumab with the greatest magnitude of effect accruing among those with the most robust reductions in C-reactive protein, and IL-6. This trial provided the researchers with a unique opportunity to explore the effects of IL-1-beta targeted therapy versus placebo on incidence rates of total hip or total knee replacement surgeries. They found that the combined incident rates for total hip or total knee replacements were 40 to 47% lower with canakinumab treatment. 
According to the authors in the accompanying editorial, the results of this analysis, while exploratory, are very exciting. The editorial notes that the investigators used elevated C-reactive protein levels as an entry criterion and may have identified a subgroup of persons with osteoarthritis in whom inflammatory cytokines activate pathways that accelerate joint degeneration. Next is a case report that suggests that canaglifosin could cause rosuvastatin toxicity when the two drugs are prescribed together, as they often are. Rosuvastatin is a commonly prescribed statin, and canagliflozin is one of the newer class of diabetes drugs, an SGLT2 inhibitor. The report describes the case of a patient who is hospitalized with severe rosuvastatin toxicity, manifesting as muscle damage and inability to walk, two weeks after starting the SGLT2 inhibitor. Although she had taken rosuvastatin uneventfully for more than five years, her blood rosuvastatin concentration when she arrived at the hospital was 15 times higher than expected for her dose. The authors speculate that canigliflozin caused rosuvastatin toxicity by increasing rosuvastatin absorption and by reducing its elimination by the liver and kidney. The authors encouraged clinicians to remain vigilant for features of myotoxicity when co-prescribing these medications. Most of the articles in the August 4th print issue were initially published online and discussed in prior podcasts. New material in the issue includes a commentary on violence as a public health problem, an in-the-clinic review on chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and a Beyond the Guidelines grand rounds that discusses appropriate care for an 85-year-old with advanced kidney disease and dementia. Is dialysis appropriate in this patient? August 4th also brings an episode of the Annals on Call podcast that focuses on appropriate management of hypertension in hospitalized patients. Finally, there is a rich array of new humanities material, an Annals graphic medicine on burnout and the primary care physician, and two very powerful on being a doctor essays that address systemic racism. In one, a black medical student describes the racism he encountered as he made his way cross country from home to medical school during the pandemic. The second essay describes medical interventions that take less than eight minutes and 46 seconds, the time that George Floyd suffered with a police officer's knee on his neck. This brings us to the end of the August 4th Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll return in two weeks for the next podcast. Between now and then, stay well and take some time to go to annals.org and delve into some of the new material I just highlighted. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.